do not know who I am, my name is Jason Faber. I'm an assistant pastor here at Sovereign Grace. I'm glad that you're all here this evening inside under the, the cool AC. And um, just want to let you know what we're going to do tonight. That we're going to break tonight's time up into two sections. First section, I'll speak directly to you. And then the second section of tonight's um, time together will be a time of question and answers. You can either text your questions into the phone number that's going to be up here, or we will at that time put this mic on the ground and you can come up and actually speak your question into the microphone. We haven't had anybody do that, and I don't, I'm not holding my breath thinking that tonight will be the first night that that happens. So um, don't feel bad about that. Let me pray, and then we'll get started um, with what we're going to talk about tonight. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your grace and your mercy and your loving kindness towards us. We're thankful for Jesus. We're thankful that we can know you and be known by you and that we are safe in a relationship with you because of Christ, because of his life, his death, his resurrection and ascension, and we don't ever have to fear that you will leave us or forsake us. And so, Lord, we pray that as we rest in these gospel truths, that we would be a people who are continually being transformed by those truths. Lord, may we be a people who um, the gospel is constantly on our lips and in our hearts, and so it is having its transformative effect on us continually. And so, Lord, we acknowledge together that we cannot hear your gospel enough. We cannot be reminded enough to rest in Jesus and his love for us. And our prayer is that as we rest in his love for us, we would then be filled with that love and give it to others. Give it to our spouses, to our children, to our friends, um, to our family. And ultimately, Lord, that we would be known um, worldwide and by everyone we come into contact with as, as a loving people. Um, that that would be the hallmark of us as a church and as a result of that, the world would know um, Jesus is the Christ and that we are his disciples. So we love you and ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are few hot-button issues more popular in our culture than intimacy and sex. The joke around sovereign grace is that if you want to pack a place out, which I didn't do tonight, but that's okay, it's, it's summer vacation, you just need to talk about either sex or the end times. Or if you really want to make it super popular, make it sex in the end times. And I, I hate to, spoiler alert, there is no um, sex after Jesus comes back. So, um, but it's a hot button issue. And typically when the church deals with it, uh, most Christians, most pastors fall into one of two camps. Um, the one camp is super conservative where it seems to never be talked about. And it's sort of dealt with in a shameful way, and we kind of turn our eyes away from it and don't ever want to address it directly. And then on the other hand, um, there can be the more liberal approach where it's talked about all the time to the point where it, it's, it, it's, it's, it's talked about in a way that makes other people uncomfortable. And uh, it, can, it can borderline on being inappropriate and out of place. And uh, I, by God's grace, hope that I avoid both of those extremes tonight. Um, we're definitely going to talk um, in very direct terms about sex, but I'm going to do my best to make sure that I'm having that discussion in a helpful way. And the reason we're talking about it is because Scripture addresses it very clearly in no uncertain terms. Scripture talks about sex. It talks about intimacy. And so in order for us to fulfill our calling as the leadership of this church, we need to teach you the whole counsel of God. 
And so we thought a great time to do that would be in the context of this, um, this marriage and parenting um, series. So tonight, I want us to learn about four truths from Scripture and uh, sex and intimacy. Four truths from Scripture about sex and intimacy. We're going to learn about the creator of intimacy and sex, the purposes of intimacy and sex, the perversion of intimacy and sex, and the redemption of intimacy and sex. So the creator, purposes, perversion, and redemption of intimacy and sex. So first, let's take a look at the creator of intimacy and sex. And the first thing we have to say in regards to Scripture, what, what Scripture tells us about the creator of intimacy and sex is that intimacy is God's idea. Sex is not something that we came up with as humans. God is the one um, who, who came up with this idea. And excuse me, I'm actually going to deal with intimacy first, not sex. Intimacy is God's idea. Excuse me, intimacy is God's idea. We did not come up with this, God did. And the reason that intimacy exists, the reason that we experience it and long for it as human beings is because we're made in God's image. God himself experiences intimacy within the the Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit know each other. They make themselves known to each other. And there's um, there's a relationship of trust and love. And so part of our being made in the image of God is that we're created for intimacy as well. But you may be asking yourself, well, you're saying that God experiences intimacy in the Trinity. What exactly is intimacy then? Because I don't want you to get any weird concepts about what I'm talking about here. And from looking at Scripture, I think there are two things that we can say, um, kind of sum up, and uh, intimacy boils down to two things, essentially. The first thing is safety and acceptance. Safety and acceptance. And we see this very clearly from Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If not, I can just read it to you. Genesis 2.25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And we're not just talking about physical nakedness. We're talking about complete vulnerability here. We're talking about emotional, psychological, complete vulnerability um, before each other. Not, not holding anything back. And they didn't have to be afraid of being rejected um, by their spouse. That's one biblical, extremely important biblical component of intimacy is safety and acceptance. And we all kind of get that, don't we? Have you ever experienced that, that sort of intimacy in your life, that sort of acceptance? And you know there are certain people in your life, I can just be myself around them. I don't have to put on any airs. I don't have to be afraid that I'm going to offend them unnecessarily. I'm not, I don't have to be afraid that they're going to reject me. And we can experience this, hopefully you're experiencing this with your spouse, but we can also experience this in friendship, can't we? This aspect of intimacy isn't just relegated to the relationship of marriage. It's something we can experience um, in our friendships with each other. I just feel like I can let my hair hang down and be open with this person, and I don't have to be... Um, afraid that they're going to reject me. Secondly, intimacy is knowing another and being known by another. It's, it's knowing another and it's also being known by another. In Genesis 3.9, we learn that before the fall, Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the garden. God would walk with them. He would talk with them. He would make himself known to them 
And, and they would make themselves known to him. There was this give and this take. Adam and Eve had the same um, relationship. They would make themselves known to each other and they would know the other person. And so we see this again and again and again. So we, we see from Genesis, we were created for intimacy. We were created to be um, accepted and feel safe. We were created to know God and each other and be known by God and by each other. That was God's plan from the very beginning for all relationships. And the supreme picture of that, obviously, was to be um, within the context of marriage. So it's, it's clear to us that intimacy was God's idea uh, because he created us in such a way that we could reflect the intimacy that takes place within um, our triune God himself. The second thing that we also see is that sex is God's idea. Not just intimacy is God's idea, but sex is also God's idea. And just so we're clear on this, sex is not simply a biological impulse or a psychological need or anything like that. That Our culture, it's, it's bent, it's tendency because of the naturalism that's prevalent throughout is to boil everything down to things that we can track and things that we can see. And so it's, it's, it's typical for our culture to say, oh, it's just, a, it's just a biological impulse. It's just a desire. It's just a need. It's, it's whatever. If we can't see it, then we can't put a label on it. But the reality is, what we see in Scripture, is that sex is a subset of the larger umbrella of intimacy. So you have this huge umbrella of intimacy, and one of the subsets of that is sex. So in order to truly understand sex, you have to understand intimacy. That's why we're talking about both of them tonight. Trying to just talk about intimacy and then talk about sex, the fear is that sex would be removed from intimacy. And I think we already have that proclivity because of our sinful hearts, and we have that proclivity because of the culture that we live in. And I don't want there to be any confusion about that. And what we see in Genesis, again, is that God is the one who made us sexual beings. God is the one who made us this way. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. God created us this way. Created us with our, with our sexual organs. And why did he do it this way? I don't really know. <laughs> but I can definitely see his wisdom in deciding to do it this way. Now, God didn't just create us as sexual beings and then tell us, all right, now go figure out what that looks like and, or do whatever you just want to do. He, said, he then shows us the proper context in which to express our sexuality. And we see that in Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 through 25. Again, we've already been here. But therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So the context in which God tells us to engage in sexual activity is within the bounds of marriage, between one man and one woman. I'm sorry, I'm going to spell things out because this goes on the World Wide Web. And for anybody that's here, I don't want there to be any confusion about that. Culturally, we live in a confusing time, so I want to be clear on that. Um, and the reason that... Uh, I appreciate the fact that Scripture tells us what um, the, the proper context for sexual activity is, is because our culture seems um, infatuated 
with um, experiencing good sex. Have you guys noticed that? I mean, it's, it's in the news. You know, I try to not look at the magazines as I'm walking through the grocery stores, but every single one of them seems to have, in the biggest, boldest letters they can, sex, 52 things you need to know about sex, 60 things you need to try in bed for the best sex, four things that he, you need to know about him in order to give him the best sex. And the, our culture just seems infatuated with this, this endless pursuit of the, the, what good sex is. And here's the good news. God defines it for us. God says good sex is between a husband and a wife in the context of a monogamous, lifelong, heterosexual marriage. That's what good sex is. So we can all just relax. The, the hunt is over. We don't have to try to join our culture in its pursuit of figuring out what, what good sex is. And there are a few noteworthy implications of the fact that God created us as sexual beings. There are a couple implications that I think are really important. First of all, sex is good. Sex is a good thing. There are many perversions of it. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But in and of itself, sex is a good thing. If you don't believe me, go read a little book in the Old Testament called the Song of Solomon. It's not graphic. It's not explicit. It's not pornographic in spite of what some people try to say. It's a beautiful poetic celebration of, of, of sex and pleasure and intimacy and loving one's spouse in the context of marriage. It's a beautiful book. But that is proof in and of itself. Sex is a good thing. Secondly, our bodies are good. Our bodies are good. God created our bodies. God created every aspect of our bodies. And Jesus himself had a body, by the way. Jesus had a body with sexual organs. Did not use those in his life, but he had them. And that was good. And the, the final implication of God creating us as sexual beings is that pleasure is good. God made sex pleasurable. God made all sorts of things pleasurable. He made eating a pleasurable experience. And sex is one of those things that he also um, deemed important enough to make pleasurable as well. And so as long as you aren't worshiping these things as God, you can receive them with thanksgiving as good gifts from God to be enjoyed in the proper context of marriage. And that's good news. I hope you're all really excited about that, because I am. The next point we're going to look at, the purposes of intimacy and sex. The purposes of intimacy and sex. The first purpose of intimacy and sex is to glorify God. To glorify God. God created us as sexual beings to glorify Him. So glorify him through intimacy and sex with your spouse. You see, when we live in appropriate intimacy with our spouse, we reflect together the intimacy within the Trinity itself. And I can, I can just tell you that I'm extremely excited about the fact that I get to glorify God in my relationship with Kristen. It's extremely exciting to me that in the context of my marriage relationship with my wife, Every aspect gets to be to the glory of God when done the way he tells us to do it in his word through Jesus Christ. So whether we eat or we drink or whatever we do, we can do it all to the glory of God. Another purpose of intimacy and sex is to know God better. And think about this. If you know something of being accepted by your spouse and making yourself known to your spouse, and knowing your spouse, you know what it's like to be in a relationship with God. You do. 
It's a little tiny picture. Your marriage is a little picture of what it's like to be in relationship with God. You see, sex and intimacy is meant to be a signpost, pointing you in the direction of the kind of relationship you should have with God. It's pointing, to you, it's pointing you to the reality of the relationship you were created to have with him. So don't be content with just stopping at the sign. Follow it all the way back to the destination and you will find that you've come to a deeper understanding of the type of relationship that we should have with God. And it's a beautiful thing that God created intimacy and sex in that way. Another purpose of intimacy and sex is to know your spouse better. All throughout Scripture, you, we see that sex is, is used, uh, it's spoken of in this term of to know. You see this right in the beginning of, of Genesis, in Genesis 4 verse 1, it says, Adam knew Eve. And so it's, it's this understanding that um, sex and intimacy are a way for you to communicate to your spouse, I love you, I want to please you, I want to serve you, and I'm committed to you, and you alone. So it's a great way to, to communicate that to your spouse and to know them, what they like, what they don't like, um, and to um, renew your covenant relationship in the context of marriage with them. Another purpose of intimacy and sex is self-giving, giving of yourself um, to your spouse. And, and I, gotta, I gotta tell you, I'm amazed at how many people I talk to who don't think about sex in this way and are actually shocked when I tell them that this is one of God's purposes for sex, for you to give of yourself to your spouse to serve them in this way. And you see, that's, that's the whole point of sex and intimacy is to give of yourself and say, I want to love you, I want to pursue you, I'm committed to you. I was reading uh, one book um, in preparing for tonight called This Momentary Marriage by John Piper. And I love the way that he talks about sex. He says that God glorifying sex is taking pleasure yourself in giving pleasure to your spouse. That's what sex is. is it's, it's taking pleasure in giving pleasure um, to your spouse. In other words, good sex is sex in which both spouses are focused on pleasing the other spouse. I want to serve you. I want to love you in this way. Another purpose of intimacy and sex is covenant renewal. Covenant renewal. We see this all throughout the Old Testament, don't we? God set up these, um, these ceremonies where they were to renew, that people of Israel as a nation were to renew the covenant with God. And so God says, listen, mar your marriage is going to be that way. Sex is going to be um, this, this act in which you um, renew your covenant vows to each other. It's the way we speak about it at the Faber household. Let's go renew the covenant. And it's, it's great. encourage you to, to do the same. But it's, uh, that's, it's, that's what Scripture tells us. It's renewing the covenant. I'm committed to you. So that's why Tim Keller talks about sex as a commitment apparatus. And I love that. It's a commitment. It, it actually accomplishes something when you engage in that activity with your spouse. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, if I, if I take you and unite you to a prostitute, don't you realize you become one with them? Now, it's all a sham. You're not actually committed to them. But sex is a commitment apparatus. So to, ex to take that commitment apparatus and use it outside of the context of marriage is to tell a lie about how God interacts with us. God renews the covenant with us, his people. 
One of the ways that we do that is, is at the Lord's table every week. We think it's important because we renew the covenant and say, Lord, I'm committed to you. I'm thankful that you have given all of these promises to me in Jesus, and I'm united with him. And so we, we renew the covenant in that way. Another purpose of intimacy and sex is procreation. Procreation. Genesis 1 verse 28 says, And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, this is a fairly straightforward point, but one of the reasons God created sex is so that we would reproduce, so that we would have children. It's one of the the reasons that God, again, created sex, one of the purposes. Um, in In His infinite wisdom, um, that's the way that he has chosen for us to, to reproduce and, and fill the earth and exercise godly stewardship and dominion over it. And the last purpose of intimacy and sex that we're going to talk about tonight is recreation. Sex, um, one of the purposes of sex and intimacy is for recreation. In other words, sex should be refreshing. It should be playful. It should be pleasurable. I mean, some of the the language that Scripture uses, I don't know the original languages, but I've read enough commentaries that talk about the language that's used, I mean, the words that are used in the original language, it would make some of us blush. Proverbs five eighteen through 19 is probably one of those passages, but we're told um, by the preacher, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her, in her love. And that's a command that God has um, towards husbands. Rejoice in your wife in this way. So that's your guys' homework. Husbands, rejoice in your wife in this way. It's a great homework assignment, isn't it? But that's, that's God commands us to be faithful to our wives, to pursue them, to love them, to be intoxicated with their love Um, And to know that sex is a pleasurable thing that's to be enjoyed. It's a pleasurable thing that's to be enjoyed. Um, And it absolutely amazes me to think about the wisdom and the goodness of God to create um, sex and intimacy this way with these purposes for which he created them. It absolutely amazes me. I mean, what we get from, from Scripture, especially the first few chapters of Genesis, is a beautiful picture of intimacy and sex, of the way life is supposed to be first and foremost in relationship to God and then in relation to um, our spouses. But that's not the picture that we see throughout the rest of Scripture, is it? That's not the picture that we, sadly enough, see in our culture or, or in our own lives or in our own hearts. And the reason for that is because anytime um, we're talking about sex or intimacy, there's always, there's a dark side, isn't there? There's a dark side to sex and intimacy. And the reason that is, is because we are broken and because our world is broken. And that leads us to our third point, the perversion of intimacy and sex. The perversion of intimacy and sex. And what we're going to see is that all the perversion springs from the fall. That's where it all started. So first, let's look at the the perversion of intimacy. And the first thing that we see is that because of the fall, our intimacy with God is broken. That's the first thing we see. In Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve sinned by eating of the fruit, what does God do? 
he curses them. He pronounces a curse upon the serpent and the man and the woman. And we're now separated from him. We're, we're still under, we're under that curse. As Adam's descendants, fellowship with the Father has been broken. And then after God curses them, what does he do? He kicks them out of the garden, doesn't he? Kicks them out of the garden, drives them out, and puts um, an angel with a flaming sword so that they can never come back. All pictures of intimacy with God, the intimacy we were created to experience with God, knowing Him, being known by Him, and feeling safe and accepted by Him is broken. It's gone. It's done away with. And you see, the fall is what brings this separation about. Because God is holy and perfect, and He can have nothing to do with that which is unholy and imperfect. And because of our sin and our sinful hearts, that's what we are. We're unholy and we're imperfect. See, because of our sin, we're no longer safe before a holy God. We're now His enemies. In the place of intimacy is now what? Hostility. All because of the fall. That's where it all started. That's where it all sprang from. But we're not only not safe before a holy God, we also don't want to know or be known by a holy God anymore, do we? How do Adam and Eve respond after they sin against God? Do they run to Him and say, Lord, we were deceived and we've sinned and we want to be reconciled? No, what are they doing? They're trying to cover their nakedness and their shame through their own works by taking fig leaves and and covering themselves. They're running and hiding from God so that God has to come and look for them. They don't look for Him, they're running from Him. So in place of intimacy with God, it's now going to be characterized that humanity runs from God in our sin, in our separation from Him. But intimacy with God isn't the only kind of intimacy that's lost in the fall. We also lose intimacy with each other. We lose intimacy um, with our spouses. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. Genesis 3, 7 through 13. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the garden, in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So we see this intimacy that God created us to experience with each other, with our spouses, just start to unravel, don't we? Adam blames the sin on Eve. Eve blames the sin on the serpent, and it just becomes a blame game. Rather than moving towards each other and, and experiencing that, that, that vulnerability and being naked and unashamed, now they're trying to hide themselves from each other. That openness, that vulnerability isn't there. Now they're filled with shame and seeking to cover up the nakedness that was once a joyful, freeing thing to experience. 
No longer are they accepting of each other, but they reject each other by blaming the other person for their sin. They're seeking to use each other rather than to love each other and serve each other and pursue each other. So we see that intimacy with God as a result of the fall is perverted and broken. We see that intimacy between mankind and our spouses is now perverted and broken. But we also see um, that sex is perverted in the fall as well. The perversion of sex. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So no longer, I'm sure some of us experience this, the awkwardness of, of being naked before our spouses, that's gone. We were created to experience that. But now it's gone. Um, We're trying to cover our our nakedness from each other. We're ashamed of being vulnerable before each other in every aspect of of our lives. Our tendency is to try to hide things, even from our spouses. By the way, we're not as good at it as we think we are. But we, we do that, don't we? And it's not the way it's supposed to be. And we get an even more clear picture of the perversion of sex, if we jump forward just a few chapters, uh, in Genesis chapter 6, if you look at Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, it says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them. Now keep in mind, this is after the fall, this is after Cain kills Abel, and now we're getting to where the uh, mankind is multiplying And we see God's response to this. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, by the way, we we see the same words used, hear, saw, um, attractive, and then took. That's the same series of words that are used in the fall when Eve sees the fruit, doesn't she? She sees it, sees that it's good or attractive, and then she takes it. Same words are used here. Um, they took their, as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of men came in, into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man who I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And we know what follows, obviously, is the Lord floods the whole earth. Now, this specific passage, there's a lot of controversy about, you know, who the sons of God are and who the daughters of men are and who the Nephilim are. And I'm not going to try to settle that tonight and get into all that. And frankly, we don't really need to. What's abundantly clear from this passage is that Sexual perversion is running rampant on the earth to such an extent that God is sorry that he made man. So the Lord made it known that he was going to destroy mankind in a great flood. 
I don't know if you guys have ever thought about that. Sexual perversion is one of the main reasons that God decides to wipe out the whole earth with a flood. And guess what? It's only God's grace that he doesn't do so again. The reason we know he won't is because of that wonderful promise in the rainbow that he puts in the, in the sky when the, the, the sun hits, hits the, the rain just right. It's that promise, I'm not going to destroy the earth the same way I did back then. But guess what? That's not because we're not deserving of it. That's because God's keeping his promise. Because sexual sin is still rampant here. Sexual perversion certainly started with the fall, but it's still around today because of our own sinful hearts, because of original sin. And there are all sorts of ways that we pervert sex. One way is that we seek to glorify ourselves through sex rather than God. So think about it. When's the last time you thought about your sex life as a way to glorify God? Do you acknowledge His Lordship even in that area of your life? Are you worshiping Him in it? Or are you worshiping yourself? That's a question we should all be asking ourselves constantly. We also seek to use sex to gratify ourselves rather than to serve our spouses. Here's a radical thought for you. Wrap your heads around this one. Christians are not to approach sex with their spouses like unbelievers do. We're not supposed to approach it the way unbelievers do. You see, the Bible tells us not only who we are supposed to have sex with, that is, our spouses, It also tells us what kind of heart attitude we're supposed to have when we do have sex with them. We've we've just been going through 1 Thessalonians, so I'm not afraid to go there. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 through 5 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles, who do not know God. And you know, the way that we do this is when we get sucked into what the culture is all about. The goal of sex in Christian marriages is not performance. It's not. It's not, it's not climax. It's not any of those things. It's serving your spouse. The goal is intimacy. The goal is to lay down your life for them and put them before yourself. To take pleasure in their pleasure. That's the goal. And so we don't have the luxury and (laughs) the curse of loving our spouses the way that the world does because it's not really love. It's self-serving. It's not self-giving. And Jesus tells us it's better to give than to receive. Another way we pervert sex is to think that sex is bad or our bodies are bad or pleasure is bad. You may think that's kind of interesting. Really? It's a, it's a perversion for us to think that those things are bad? It is. Listen to what 1 Timothy 4 verses 1 through 5 says when he's battling against the Gnostics. The Gnostics are this group that think that uh, material, physical things are bad in and of themselves, so they're supposed to be shunned. And here's what Paul says to Timothy. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Listen to this. Who forbid marriage 
and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. In other words, the things that God have made, has made in and of themselves are good. God created sex. It's good. God created our bodies and our sexual organs. They're good. God created pleasure. It's good when it's received with thanksgiving and put in its proper context. So don't call bad what God has called good. Don't do that. On the other hand, you have the folks that pervert sex by thinking that every form of sexual expression is fine because all that's important is that you express yourself. And don't think this doesn't happen in the church. You can look all throughout the New Testament. Shoot, it happened amongst the Israelites back then, and it still happens in the camp today among Christians. You can see Paul having to refute the lies and say, no, no, that's not acceptable. You're not being gracious by allowing this um, man to sleep with his, his mother-in-law. That's not gracious. You need to let them know that that's sin and that's wrong. And so it's the same thing today. These folks are, are, are not interested in God's authority over their lives. They reject God's authority and say, listen, people can do whatever they want. We can't know what's right. We can't know what's wrong. This is an area where we get to do whatever we want, so long as it's two consenting adults, right? Although that's a, I think that's going to eventually go away as well. And this, leads, this attitude leads to all sorts of sexual perversions, homosexuality, bisexual lifestyle, adultery, fornication, and sadly, I, I hate to say this, but I think that pedophilia will begin receiving cultural exception in the not, uh, accept, uh, acceptance in the not-so-near future. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised by that. The way things are going, you just wait and see. That's, that's probably coming down the pike. And lastly, we pervert sex through sexual lust. And typically, typically, now I'm going to speak in generalizations, um, so, so stereotypes, so, so be patient with me. Typically, this looks pretty different, though, for men and women. It does. For men, since we tend to be very visual, physical creatures, we tend to be drawn to things like pornography and masturbation, both of which, by the way, are sins, just to let you know. For women, on the other hand, who tend to be more relational, emotional creatures, they tend to be more drawn to things that evoke romance and romantic feelings. So the equivalent of uh, porn for women are popular books like Fifty Shades of Grey or the popular movie that seems to just be um, doing so well in, in the box office amongst unbelievers and believers, Magic Mike, both of which, again, are nothing short of pornographic and therefore sinful, and should be avoided by Christians. So you see, the sad reality is that because of the fall and our sinful hearts, intimacy and sex have been radically perverted from what God originally created them to be. And the even more sad reality is that we all stand condemned before God in how we've abused and perverted intimacy and sex, don't we? We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God in these regards. Every single one of us. None of, none of our hands are clean in regards to these things. 
So what's the hope in this mess? What's the hope for us? What's the hope for our culture? What's the hope for um, the people that we know and love? What's the hope for ourselves? What hope can we possibly have? And I know you already know the answer. The hope is Jesus. Our only hope is in Jesus. And in Jesus, we actually see the redemption of intimacy and sex. The intimacy of, I'm sorry, the redemption of intimacy and sex. You see, Jesus becomes a man and humbles himself and steps on the planet in as our substitute. In his life, what you see again and again and again is that Jesus has perfect intimacy with the Father. You see that again and again, don't you? See, we run from it. We turn from him. We run away from him. Jesus didn't. Jesus entered into that intimacy with the Father perfectly in our place because he was fully man. God makes himself known to Jesus and Jesus perfectly makes himself known to God and perfectly draws near to the Father in our place. He did that as our substitute. And you know what? God now takes that perfect track record of Jesus' intimacy and he gives it to you. He accounts it as your own. When he looks at you, God sees you as having the perfect track record of Jesus in regards to intimacy with him. And in in his death on the cross, God abandons Jesus in our place. You see, you and I, we know this, we deserve to be abandoned by God, don't we, for our sins. Jesus didn't. And yet on the cross, again, he's our substitute Jesus willingly takes our place and is abandoned by God so that he says what? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned your back on this intimacy and now made me an object of your hostility and your wrath? Jesus willingly chose this for you and for me because that's what we deserved. We deserved that hostility. We deserved that wrath. But Jesus took it in our place. And on that cross, what we see is that God takes all of our dirtiness and our sin and uncleanness and shame and guilt for our past sins and he puts it on Jesus on the cross. And then God crushes him for those sins. You see, Jesus removes all of our shame and guilt for our sins and intimacy and sex. He removes it all. And by his blood, our consciences are now cleansed. They're sprinkled with the the blood of Christ himself. But the best part of all of this is that because God treated Jesus as we deserve to be treated, we can now know true intimacy with God again. We can now know God and draw near to Him and make ourselves known to Him without fear of being rejected. Because guess what? He can't reject us. He can't. Why, you ask? Because Jesus has bound Himself to us. He's bound Himself to us. Listen to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11-13. through 13. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure with him, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Why? 
for he cannot deny himself. You see, God doesn't just commit himself to you. He unites himself to you through Jesus. We are one with Jesus, mystically united with him through the indwelling Holy Spirit. And because of that union, we're cleansed from our sin. Listen to what Jesus, uh, listen to what Paul says, excuse me, in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. This is what Paul says about our identity now in Christ. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Brothers and sisters, we are clean in Jesus. And I hope what you're beginning to see is that sex is just a signpost that points to the ecstatic intimacy and union we were created to experience with Jesus. Sex is just a signpost. It points to that deeper reality. So don't just stop at the sign. Go all the way to the destination that the sign points to. Jesus is that destination. Jesus is the end. And you know what? Once you rest in the perfect spousal love of Jesus for you, once you know him and make yourself known to him and you know that he loves you and accepts you, you can then move towards your spouse. You can seek to know them and make yourself known to them and accept them and love them and serve them sexually. But before that can ever happen, you have to rest first in Jesus' perfect spousal love for you. That's where it all starts. Let me pray, and then I'll have Chad come up, um, and we'll do some, some question and answer time. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that we are a broken people. We're broken in our relationship with you, and because of that brokenness, we're broken in our relationships with our spouses and with everyone around us. And Lord, we're thankful that though we have run from you, though we have turned from you, though we try to hide from you, though we rebel against you, and want to take your place. You've pursued us and loved us. You have changed us. You have given us new hearts that desire to serve you and to please you. Father, thank you for entering into that intimate relationship with us through your son, Jesus Christ, and uniting us with him. We pray now that as your children who have received, we pray, Lord, as your bride who has received the perfect spousal love as Jesus our perfect bridegroom, that we would now um, enter into intimacy, intimate relations with our spouses, that we would seek to know them and make ourselves known to them, that they would feel loved and accepted by us and that we would seek to serve each other and love each other and use sex as an arena to glorify you and experience pleasure and rejoice in your goodness and wisdom to us together.
Lord, we want to be known as a people who walk in accordance with your word. And you have given us all the resources to do that. You've given us the perfect spousal love of Jesus. You've given us your Holy Spirit. You've given us your word. You've given us the community within which to to, um, live this life. And so we pray that we would learn to love each other the way that you love us. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glorious sake. Amen. When you say sex, do you mean the act of sex or other things beforehand? Yes, both. Um, Yeah, we don't define sex the way Bill Clinton does. (laughs) I'm not being funny. That's that's, that's actually how he defined it. We don't define it the same way. So, yeah, everything that's involved with that. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, is that clear enough? All right, you're just going to get the next one all on your own because I I know you've had to deal with this with young men before. Why is masturbation sinful? Why is masturbation sinful? Well, we have, to, we have to step back. By the way, I can't turn you to one specific passage um, and say, see, look, it says right there that masturbation is sin. People have tried, and the arguments don't, just don't hold. Again, we've got to step back and say, what's the purpose for which God gave us our, our sexual organs? Um, he gave them um, so that we could express um, serving our spouses in the context of marriage. Um, to reflect the intimacy, the intimate relationship that we're to have with, with God um, ourselves. So it's all about self-giving. So one of the things I had to grapple with, I, I've spent most of my life as a single man, and uh, one of the things I had to come to grips with was the reality that I don't have any sexual needs. I don't. It wasn't until I became married that I had sexual needs. And you know what those sexual needs were? to serve and to love and to give of myself to my, to my spouse, to my wife. So why is masturbation sin? It's an abuse of the organ, that, that the sexual organ that God has given you um, to use in the context and the bounds um, of marriage. So you're, you are, instead of self-giving, you are self-gratifying. So it, it's, it's a sin. It's, to me, it's a, it's a clear and necessary implication of everything else that Scripture talks about. So I don't have a hard time standing up here and saying, um, it's sin. Not, not, to mention, not to mention the fact that usually your thought life is not pure oh, yeah. in the act of masturbation, so that's, that's another yep. issue altogether. Um, and, and married men will often ask me, well, what about if I think about my wife or something like that? And the, the problem is, again, you're, you're using your wife mm-hmm. at that point. Um, she's an object for your use and abuse, not, not for, um, not, you're not showing love to your wife that way. So, um, let, let, me, let me make a statement about this because I think, I think there's something that's important here before we jump to this question. Um, I got an email, or an email. I was looking at an article from a friend that a friend had written in um, the Huffington Post. And I, I showed some of the guys, the elders, this the other day. And, and um, um, the article was written by a pastor who's a friend, and he wrote a, uh, an article called, um, you know, hot monogamous sex. Oh, man. And the whole article was about how believer, you know, people who are married can have hotter sex than people who aren't and do and have more of it. And I thought to myself, wow, talk about an article that completely misses the point. Never talks about the gospel, never talks about Jesus, never talks about the purpose of marriage or sex, none of it. It's just the world loves perverse, you know, steamy, um, ideas of what sex is, and so we can one-up the world. Mm-hmm. We can be better than them at that. 
That, that really isn't the goal of the Christian life, guys. It isn't the goal of sex and marriage. Um, I'm not saying you can't have sex that's very good in Christian marriage or that you shouldn't. I'm not saying either, any of those things. But that isn't our goal. Our goal isn't to say, how can we outperform the world in the bedroom? It just isn't it. Um, and, and so the fact that a pastor takes time to write about that was, frankly, it was disturbing to me. I intend to send him an email and let him know it was disturbing to me. Um, because it, it's just not something we need to talk about. Yeah. I mean, it's not my job. I don't know anything about how to make sex steamier. That's not my thing. I'm not like a sex therapist. I'm a pastor, right? Mm. And um, so the church needs to be talking about what the scriptures talk about. And that's, that's what we need to say. And we need to be people who are finding joy in what God tells us about sex and not, and not trying to find some worldly version of it and then baptize it mm. and call it Christian. Um, Anyway, there, you had some... I'll go to the next go one. Ahead. That's actually my phone, but you can look yeah, at it. Um, what does someone do when a spouse turns away and gives no intimacy at all? Mm. Um, well, first of all, uh, spouses, by the way, are commanded um, to... What are we talking about? Intimacy or sex here? Turns away and gives no gives intimacy no at all. Gives no intimacy oh, at probably all. Probably both. All right. Well, on the, on the intimacy side... That's extremely, extremely difficult. I, so I'm going to take that separately from the, from the sex first, first and foremost. Um, one thing is I hope that you are plugged into a really good church. Um, and, and so you're able to enter into intimate relationships um, with people inside the body. You know, I mean, one of the incredible things is even if you're single, you can still have intimate relations, uh, relationships with other people in, in the local church. Um, it's one of the one of the greatest things. It was the greatest uh, resource to me as a single guy. I could make myself known to to others um, in appropriate ways with with females. But I really went hard after uh, other guys. You know, I want you to know me. I want to be um, known. I want to know you, and I want this to be a place where you know we're resting in the gospel together, and it's safe, and we love each other. So one thing is, if you're not receiving that intimacy in the context of your marriage, you need to seek that in the context of the local church with, um, if it's a, a guy, other male Christians who can help you and strengthen you through that, or if you're a woman, other, other female Christians who can um, strengthen you and in, encourage you through that. You can't do that by yourself. Um, you're not going to be able to. Don't, don't try to. Um, now, if, if by intimacy you're also talking about sex, I mean, that's one of the things that I didn't have time to, to talk about in the actual talk. Um, but 1 Corinthians 7 is abundantly clear that we're not supposed to withhold from our spouses um, sexually. They have conjugal rights. So my body is not mine anymore. It's my wife's and her body's not hers anymore. Um, it's mine. And so I, I need to be thinking about her needs and putting her needs before my own. And so it's, guess what, sinful um, to, to withhold from your spouse if it's not um, on an agreed upon, for an agreed-upon time um, for a limited time, by the way, the Apostle Paul says, um, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Um, and I think that's not just talking about the sexual union. I think it's also talking about you know, intimacy in, in general. Um, our desire is, is, is going to be, to, our temptation is going to be to be dro- pulled away from our spouses um, in all sorts of ways. So, so they have a right you, they, they have to, by God, God's command, give that to you. Now, I understand that that's probably a sticky issue because then you go, can I never turn my spouse down? 
Um, and and you, that's, you guys need to talk about that together. Sometimes, you know, you may have to sacrifice because you love your spouse. Um, at either end, by the way, you know, sometimes if you're desiring it, you may sacrifice um, not having it for, out of love for your spouse. And then if, if you're not the one that, you're the one that doesn't want it, but your spouse does, there are times where you sacrifice and, and give to them. So you see, the way we're biblically called to think about sex and intimacy is completely different from the way the world thinks about it. Um, so that's why we thought this was important enough to talk about. You going to take the... Yeah, I, I can. There you go, I, good. I just finished that with, if that's the con- case in your marriage, then um, you probably need to seek some mutual accountability with, with some other believers oh, yeah. with regard to making sure that that gets straightened out. Because if there's not intimacy and sex occurring in, in your marriage, um, then you're, you're on your way to, to really rough times if you're not already in them. Mm-hmm. It's usually an indication of lots of other issues happening in the marriage as well. But it's, it is a part of the renewal of the covenant. It is a part of the nature of intimacy in the marriage. And it, it ought to be happening mm-hmm. um, fairly regularly. Sex in the marriage ought to be happening fairly regularly. I don't know what that means. I'm not going to define that for anybody in particular. But, but the point is, is that this idea that, you know, you're withholding all the time from each other, that, that would be a, a real indication or, or an indication to me of some real serious issues in that marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not talking about I worked hard all day and I'm exhausted and right. and the kids wore me out and I feel nasty, dirty and you know all this kind of stuff and I just got to take a shower and lay down and go to bed, and that's that's one thing, right? Yeah, that's that's a different sort of issue, but it's just where, you know, even on your even on a night you go on a date and you're you're hanging out and and then you're turning each other down even then, then you're starting to go wait a minute this is this is a real problem this isn't just a circumstance that's outside of really any of our controls and we're all exhausted all exhausted right now this is all the two of us right both exhausted Hopefully. right now maybe i should change that word <laughs> both exhausted right now <laughs> i was thinking of like abraham and some of those guys <laughs> okay you know <clears throat> we're both exhausted right now but this is this is an issue of just this i'm just talking about you just turning each other down because you are um because you're just selfish that's a problem because there's just no intimacy in the marriage so you're not interested in one another that way yeah. um is oral sex okay in the marriage? Um, you know, here's the thing. Um, you're, um, I, I, would, I would say this. I, I'm asked this question often, like, what's, what's allowed and what's not allowed? And, and I would tell you, first of all, I think it's, it's the wrong place to start the discussion. It's, in fact, the wrong question to start with. Um, what can I or can't I do? Um, I don't think is the right question to start with. The right question to start with is, is what glorifies God and honors my spouse mm. yeah. and demonstrates love to them. And, um, and then from there, you work back to um, what are things that we enjoy together that aren't harmful to her or him that honor my spouse, that glorify God. And you'll just have to work that out. Um, I, 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 as far as oral sex, I, don't, I can't find anything in the scriptures that would say anything against it. Um, and I, can't, I don't know that it's, as far as I know, it's not harmful to anybody. And if your spouse, if you and your spouse feel that somehow that, that encourages intimacy between you and you enjoy doing that together, then I, I suppose you're welcome to participate in that. Uh, but if one of the members of the couple is very uncomfortable with that and having issues, and uh, I, would, I would not push your spouse in that regard mm. and make demands of them mm. uh, because you're not giving then, you're just demanding, you're taking. 
And so you need to work that out in, in your relationship. Now, I will tell you that if your spouse feels like, well, this is a sin, um, then you probably need to take time to reinform their conscience before you push them to violate their conscience. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't violate their conscience. But you, you ought to take time to reinform their conscience. And, um, and that may take time. And you don't do that just with the objective that, well, I'll reinform their conscience so I get this thing I want. Right? You're reinforming their conscience so that they understand properly what God does and does not command. What God says about issues and does not say about issues. Do you guys follow me on that? Because your goal is that they have the clearest understanding of, of their walk with the Lord and of his word, not that you get what you want at the end of reinforming their conscience. Anything else? Okay, Jay. Let me pray and you guys can get out of here. Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful um, that you have uh, ordained to make known to us um, the mystery of Christ and um, his uh, life and death and burial and resurrection. We're thankful that we're united to him by grace through faith. And we pray, Lord, that we would grow in our love for you and for one another and that in that um, Christ would be exalted. We ask it in his name. Amen.